I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the One Woman Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Grace, and this is the podcast where we talk about all things book-related, author-related, any news in the book world, current events, new releases, books I'm looking forward to this month, monthly roundups, and of course, discuss half of our monthly book club pick, which this month is notes on, (laughs) I almost said it again, if you know, you know, if you listened to last week's episode, this month we are reading Notes on an Execution by Danya Kukovka. And if you didn't listen to last week's episode, you definitely should, but I keep wanting to call it notes on your sudden disappearance or notes on your sudden execution because I loved notes on your sudden disappearance by Alison Esbach last summer. Um, Anyway, so we're reading notes on an execution. It has been amazing. And for today's episode, you should have finished that book. And I've gotten a lot of, you know, 50, 50 sorts of feedback on the book. So I'm really excited to get into all of my thoughts. There's a lot to talk about um, book-related for notes on an execution. Otherwise, I don't have too, too much to say up front. What I'm realizing in these two episodes a month with this like schedule and upload schedule is that the first episode of the month is when I talk about all the books that are coming out for the month, books I'm looking forward to, roundups, what book of the month is doing, what the celebrity book clubs are doing. And I don't leave much room for me to chat at the in the second episode. I can talk about I have finished two books um, for September so far. So I've read four books in September, 
two that I haven't talked about yet, one that I'm currently in the middle of, and it's the 24th right now, Sunday the 24th, as I'm recording this. So I'm hoping throughout the next week, I'll be able to read a couple more, fingers crossed. Before we get into all of that, lots has happened with recording this episode today. So I don't know what it's actually going to sound like. I'm a little bit nervous. I'm recording the podcast today in a way that I never have before out of um, need and necessity. So I use a Blue Yeti microphone to record and it has a USB end. And on my MacBook, there's no USB like slot to plug it in. So I always use like a little dongle attachment to plug it into like the USB-C slot, whatever. And I'm getting ready to record today. And I moved my MacBook in like a really weird way. And the dongle like snapped. So couldn't use my MacBook to record, which is super weird. So I'm actually using my work laptop and a online like podcast recording tool called Zencaster, which we actually use for my like work podcast that I'm a part of. So I'm recording via Zencaster. My Blue Yeti mic is plugged into my work laptop and the headphones that I use are Audio-Technica headphones and I use them like here and there when I'm editing only. But today I wasn't able to hear the playback on the podcast in (laughs) none of this probably interests any of you guys if you're into tech stuff maybe, but I wasn't able to hear the playback of the podcast with the Blue Yeti microphone plugged in. So I had to plug the headphones into the microphone and I'm hearing myself in the headphones like talking as it would, as I think it's going to be like how you'll hear it. Never done that before. So I don't know how this is going to sound. I'm going to have to export the MP3 and then edit it on my MacBook. And fingers crossed, everything sounds okay. If not, I'm so sorry. Um, And it'll just be a few days late because I have to run and get that dongle attachment. But I do not have time this morning because I am waitressing at one o'clock this afternoon. As some of you know, I got a part-time job waitressing. So that's what we're getting into. So very busy this morning. Um, I hope you're all having a fantastic couple of weeks, a great weekend. Happy official fall. The first day of fall was yesterday on the 23rd. Um, I hope you all did something fun to celebrate or at least got your fall TBR all ready to go. Um, But just to jump right in, I would love to chat about the two books that I finished Um, in the two weeks since we last spoke and give you guys my thoughts on them. So the first book that I finished was The Wishing Game by Meg Schaefer. And I actually just posted my full review of that on Instagram today. So if you're not following me on Instagram, which I'm sure the vast majority of you are, it's at Grace's Reading Nook. Um, And I loved The Wishing Game. So I think I've talked about it on the podcast because I got it in my book of the month box um, last month, I want to say. And I've just seen a million five-star reviews for it. And I love books about books and books that talk about like the love of reading. And this one really does that. Um, So let me give you guys a brief synopsis if you have not heard about it or if you missed it on the podcast, and even if I didn't talk about it, because I'm not 100% sure that I did. Um, so here's the little synopsis from Goodreads. Years ago, a reclusive, mega best-selling children's author quit writing under mysterious circumstances. Suddenly, he resurfaces with a brand new book and a one-of-a-kind competition, offering a prize that will change the winner's life in this absorbing and whimsical novel. 
Make-A-Wish. Lucy Hart knows better than anyone what it's like to grow up without parents who loved her. In a childhood marked by neglect and loneliness, Lucy found her solace in books, namely the Clock Island series by Jack Masterson. Now a 26-year-old teacher's aide, she is able to share her love of reading with bright young students, especially seven-year-old Christopher Lamb, who was left orphaned after the tragic death of his parents. Lucy would give anything to adopt Christopher, but even the idea of becoming a family seems like an impossible dream without proper funds and stability. But be careful what you wish for. Just when Lucy is about to give up, Jack Masterson announces he's finally written a new book. Even better, he's holding a contest at his home on the real Clock Island, and Lucy is one of the four lucky contestants chosen to compete to win the one and only copy. For Lucy, the chance of winning the most sought-after book in the world means everything to her and Christopher. But first, she must contend with ruthless book collectors, wily opponents, and the distractingly handsome and grumpy Hugo Reese, the illustrator of the Clock Island books. Meanwhile, Jack, the mastermind Masterson, is plotting the ultimate twist that could change all of their lives forever. You might just get it. So really, really cute. It had such strong, like Willy Wonka, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory vibes, which I was not mad about. I rated this somewhere between a 3.5 and a 4. As I've sat on it, I finished this about a week ago. It's probably closer to a 4. I really, really enjoyed it. It wasn't anything like Rev- I always say this, like it wasn't anything revolutionary. Like it's not my favorite book of all time. Um, but I think that a lot of people will really, really like it. I think it was a really unique and special story. Um, but loved the character of Jack Masterson. He was so fascinating and so much fun. And he really, like I just said, really reminded me of Willy Wonka. He was incredibly endearing, mysterious, and a little bit creepy. He was just so much fun to read about. I really especially loved, like I said, I love books about books and I loved um, hearing about and reading the little pieces of the Clock Island books in this story and kind of like the lore and the trivia that was surrounding the series. And it really, really reminded me if you guys read the Magic Treehouse series when we were kids. I loved that series. I remember specifically getting the full box set um, in one of the book um, catalogs. Do you remember the Scholastic Book Catalogs? that came in like the little, is it the word catalog? It's not the book fair, but like monthly they would come out with like a little paper booklet and you could circle and buy books. I got the whole Magic Treehouse series. And I remember literally coming back from recess one day and the whole stack was sitting on my desk because that's what my teacher did. She would like put the book orders on the desks. Um, And I was so excited. So I loved the Magic Treehouse series. That's where I'm that's my whole train of thought there. In the Clock Island series, for some reason, really, really reminded me of that because it's very magical and whimsical and um, just super fun. So definitely pulled at my heartstrings there and was kind of like, I said this in my Instagram post, like a dose of childhood nostalgia. Nostalgia. It was so much fun. Um, really liked the whole idea that these adults all go back to Clock Island to compete for this new book. Again, very much Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Willy Wonka vibes. The only thing that troubled me a little bit was I found if you have read it, I don't want to like give anything away and this really isn't, but I had a hard time connecting with the main character of Lucy a little bit. I loved her relationship with seven-year-old Christopher. Um, and I was, I found it endearing her deep want, um, to be his mother, but I did find it a little bit far-fetched and just mildly troubling at first. Um, it just didn't seem like a realistic way to like 
adopt a child or have a relationship with a child. But by the end, I was able to see past it because it all really was just like magical um, in the end. The ending especially was so sweet and touching. And I truly got like full chills, if you know, you know, on multiple occasions. It was just totally atmospheric and magical. Um, and I think it'll sit with me for a while because of how unique it was. It was touching and mysterious and beautiful. Um, and I just enjoyed my my time on Clock Island the whole time I was reading it. So about four stars. It was super duper cute. And I know I'm actually kind of like the outlier for not rating it like five massive stars because I know so many of my books to friends like really, really enjoyed it even more so than I did. So if it at all sounds intriguing to you, absolutely pick it up because it is just, it is a treat. The next book that I finished was The September House by Carissa Orlando. Um, and it was good. I'm kind of on the same feeling of somewhere between a 3.5 and a 4. Um, I know I, I get, I, these are very similar reviews. I know I'm kind of an outlier on this one because I know so many of my friends on Bookstra, again, who are horror fans, are reading this like five massive stars. It wasn't a five star read for me at all. Um, actually at times it like quite annoyed me, but I know that a lot of horror fans are just going to absolutely love this one. This is a new release. It just came out in September. Um, and I think I talked about it in the last episode when I was talking about new releases that I wanted to read for September. I'm almost positive I talked about it. Um, so please just fast forward through this part. If I have, I'm going to give you a little brief synopsis and then I'll talk about my own review. It says a woman is determined to stay in her dream home even after it becomes a haunted nightmare in this compulsively readable, twisty and layered debut novel. When Margaret and her husband Hal bought the large Victorian house on Hawthorne Street for sale at a surprisingly reasonable price, they couldn't believe they finally had a home of their own. Then they discovered the hauntings. Every September, the walls drip blood, the ghosts of former inhabitants appear, and all of them are terrified of something that lurks in the basement. Most people would flee. Margaret is not most people. Margaret is staying. It's her house. But after four years, Hal can't take it anymore and he leaves abruptly. Now, he's not returning calls and their daughter, Catherine, who knows nothing about the hauntings, arrives intent on looking for her missing father. And it's in September. So this one has a 4.14 on Goodreads right now out of 2,300 ratings and almost 700 reviews. Um, and let me give you guys my synopsis. It was fun. So it, it was, so it didn't scare me. Honestly, I think that Carissa Orlando made it more like funny. Um, it was gory. I will say if you're sensitive to like blood and guts and gore and, um, even like children involved in all of that. Cause there was definitely a lot of that. Um, I want to skip it because I'm not sensitive to that stuff because I love horror movies and I, I don't love gore. I don't know, like not into it, but, um, I can stand it. Like it's not that big of a deal for me. It has a lot of it. Um, but she did everything in like a really funny, like underlying, like it's almost like a comedy horror in a way. And it never made me like scared to sleep or anything like that. Um, Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, 
that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. I also was not, I'm not sure if I was in the full horror mood when I read it. So it might just be like my own state of mind, but I don't know if it was the perfect time for me to read it. Definitely don't let, it's just a lukewarm review, honestly, that I'm giving. Don't let it deter you. If that synopsis sounds interesting to you, I think you'll enjoy it. It was a unique and refreshing premise of a book. It was a new take on a haunted house story that I really enjoyed. I love ghosts, haunted houses, anything like that. Um, Frederica is one of the characters in it. She's a ghost in the house and she truly was a real highlight of a character for me. She was just so incredibly annoying and infuriating at times, but in a way that was so, so funny. Um, the one problem I, I, I could not stand the main character of Margaret. She pissed me off so, so much at so many points to the point of like not wanting to pick it up because she was so insufferable and annoying. The biggest thing, like this just sums up why her character was annoying to me was that her 30-year-old daughter comes to stay at the house with her because the husband is missing or whatever. And whenever her daughter even says like shit or like says any like lukewarm, like very mild swear, she's 30 years old. 
Margaret, her mom, goes language like she's correcting a four-year-old. And it really, really, really irked me. Like I that was just like the sum up of her character. She was really annoying to me. Um, however, what I will say, um, loved the ending. I really, really enjoyed it. And if you have read it, I would love for you to DM me on Instagram because I think that it took one twist at the end that I wish it didn't take almost. Um, and I think you might be surprised what my take on that is because I was talking to a friend this weekend who actually read it also. And I was like, I really wish the book just like stopped at this point. Like if you know, you know, if you don't, I'm not spoiling anything. I wish it just ended at a certain point and didn't take that final twist. Um, and I think it would have been much better, but it was still really fun. It was spooky. It's a good like entry level horror. If you don't mind gory stuff, it was a really fun ride. Um, super fun to like enter into spooky season, but nothing that I would highly, highly recommend, um, either way. So it was fun. And those are the two books that I've read since we last spoke. So I've read Notes on an Execution, September House, The Wishing Game, and Talking at Night by Claire Daverly. And right now I am starting and I'm about 70 pages into Happiness Falls by Angie Kim. This one is getting hype literally everywhere you look. It's like one of the fall's biggest debuts. And honestly, so I guess I'm just like a weird reader this month. I've been seeing it get like, again, lukewarm reviews on Bookstagram. Like people are kind of like middle of the road. Some people are just stopping reading it completely. Like they're not vibing with it at all. Um, I'm really enjoying it. I just got through part one. So I'm on page like 80 or so. Um, One thing I will say, people are saying that it's not, it's kind of marketed more as like a mystery um, because it's about a father who goes missing right at the beginning of the book. That's like the main plot point. Um, but they're like, it's definitely more of a family drama and that's so up my alley. That's totally fine with me. Um, I love the family drama aspect of it and I'm just enjoying the fact that there's a mystery element at all. Like I will read books about complicated family relationships anytime someone puts one on at me or puts, gives me one, a rec for one. So I absolutely love it so far. Um, thoroughly enjoying it. It, The writing style is a little bit different. Um, it's really interesting and cool to like be in the mind of the narrator. And it's very much like a, a string of thoughts. You can really like feel through her thought process as you're reading and I'm really enjoying it. So that's what I'm reading now. And next up, I want to be really, I'm dying to read. I own it now. I bought it last week at Bull Moose, the new book in the Thursday Murder Club series, The Last Devil to Die. I cannot talk about this series enough. It's one of my all-time favorite series. Um, So, so good. Um, very much cozy murder. It's about a group of people living in a um, senior living community who get together every Thursday and try to solve unsolved crimes. And they're called the Thursday Murder Club. And this is the fourth book in the series, like I said, and I just love the characters so much. They're so heartwarming and endearing and it's so funny. And the twists are always really, really good. From what I've seen, one of the main characters actually might get involved in the crime this time. So that's really exciting. What isn't exciting is that Richard Osman, the author of this series, I think is taking a break from them after this. And that makes me sad because I really, really love reading them when they come out every September. Um, But that's okay. I'll survive. I'm just going to enjoy this one. So I think I'm going to read that next. Um, And I really want to read a book called Witch of Wild Things, which I talked about in the last episode, which I now also own because I cannot stay away from Bull Moose. Um, So those are two things at the top of my radar coming up this week. 
And this is going live on September 25th. And it looks like it's time for us to choose our October books. So if you're not following me already on Bookstagram, Grace's Reading Nook, definitely be following me there because this week, one of the days, I'm not sure I haven't actually chosen the books yet. So once I choose the books, um, um, I will be posting a poll question and a little synopsis of what book you want to read in October. Or if this is one of your first times listening to my podcast, I give all my followers and anyone who listens a chance to choose from four books and give you guys a little synopsis and then you get to vote on what book we read for each month. So that'll be going live um, this week. So make sure you get your votes in and I'll be revealing that on my Instagram once the votes are closed. And the reading schedule for October, like I always do, I give you guys about a week to get the book and read halfway through. Our first episode will be going live on Monday, October 9th. And episode two for October will be live on Monday, um, October 23rd. So lots of fun. I'm definitely going to be choosing some sort of a spooky haunted. It doesn't have to necessarily be horror or like thriller mystery, but I definitely want to have some sort of like fun fall vibes, whether that's a romance or a spooky book, something like that. We're definitely going to have some fall elements incorporated in. So I'm really excited. I also have something fun going on on October 11th, um, which is a Wednesday. And I think y'all know what that's going to be, but I can talk about that more in the October 9th episode. I think that's all I really want to talk about today before we get into the notes on an execution discussion. I finished this book now. It feels like forever ago. It's been about two weeks, so I need to get back into the zone of it all. Um, and I did have a chance to ask you all some um, poll questions on my Instagram for the end of the episode, for the end of the book, sorry. So we'll get into that at the end. But as always, we'll start with my chapter by chapter synopsis and my own personal thoughts. Um, if you have not finished notes on an execution, definitely stop listening because there's going to be plenty of spoilers in this episode. If you don't care, you can definitely keep listening. Or if you finished it a long, long time ago, you can definitely keep listening as well. But I think we're just going to go ahead and get into it. Okay. So we're starting halfway through to discuss. So we're starting back in Lavender's part and it's going to be in 2002. And I said, wow, did I pick a good place for us to stop last time without even knowing it? What a chapter. First and foremost, baby Packer didn't die, which is just a massive, massive revelation and one I did not even think to see coming. He was adopted in the hospital and renamed Ellis Harrison, and he has a whole life, and it seems to be a pretty great one. Ellis, at this point in 2002, has no idea that Ansel exists, but clearly something ends up happening there because Ellis has a daughter named Blue, and the Blue House is the restaurant that him and his wife own. Does Ansel end up going there and meeting them? I can't remember what he said about it at the beginning of the book. Um, but I'm sure we're going to find out, which we do. All we know is that he has a photo of the Blue House and, and a short letter from Blue that he has memorized. Wow, what a chapter. And now I am really curious as to how all of that will play out. We also learned that Lavender had some fun for two years out in California on the road before settling into an all-women's commune where she's been for 20 years. She had lived with the decision she made every day of those two decades, and she talked about how she wishes she had saved her children instead of herself, 
But I talked about this in last week's episode, how I personally feel like by saving herself, she also saved her children since there wasn't a way for her to leave with them. Could she have gone back and helped them? Yes. And that's an outcome I hadn't really thought about, but I don't think Lavender was ready to be a mother despite her clear love for her children. But regardless, like even if you're not ready to be a mother, she was a mother and just, you know, whatever. Um, when she, oh, she clearly feels extremely guilty about leaving them. So she opened up to the women at the commune about her past and all of them really urged her to go to San Francisco to find answers. Um, so she does. And she meets Cheryl, Ellis's adoptive mother. And it seems like Ellis has had quite the wonderful life living in NYC and now with a little family of his own. Cheryl seems very classy and rich and deep down like a good person, but to me, one of the most powerful parts of the chapter was when Lavender realizes that Cheryl saw Ansel in the hospital the day she adopted Ellis, but didn't take Ansel too. And Lavender asks Cheryl, you just left him there? And Cheryl has a sort of smug reply, though it is true when she says, Ansel was never ours, he was yours. But I do have a lot of trouble with that. Because wasn't Ellis Lavender's at first too? And just personally, I would find it incredibly difficult to separate two brothers who had come to the hospital together. And in my opinion, there is something a little bit cruel about that and to never even tell Ellis he has a brother at all. Lavender is obviously heartbroken and the whole trip just leaves her more depressed and wanting to now know what Ansel is up to. I'm very curious where we go from here, but wow, it was just an incredibly powerful chapter. And like I said, just a really great place for us to stop last week. And now we're back in Ansel's POV with four hours left. And I just said, quick question before we get into this chapter, why does Ansel still hear the baby crying? Why in that one chapter did he say, you found a different way to stop baby Packer from crying? Is it possible he's hearing the crying from the hospital when they were separated? The last of any family member for him? Just curious what your thoughts would be there. So With the four hours left of Ansel's life, we do get a couple of bombshells. Ansel does make his way to the Blue House, and he does talk to Blue. And in that conversation, she asks what happened to Jenny, and he says that sometimes marriages just don't work out. So is it possible he went to the Blue House with Jenny first, and that's how Blue knows about her? Is it possible he just told her about her? Also, is it possible that Ansel isn't telling Ellis who he is and that he's just needing a place to stay? Maybe Lavender gets in touch with Ansel and tells him about Ellis and he goes to him. I'm just very curious how all of that plays out. And now Ansel has less than four hours left to live and he's feeling the pressure of his imminent execution. The court did not even look at his appeal and sees going to die. He also talks about when he saw Jenny for the first time on his college campus and he knew that he was, and he knew that she was going to be his last girl. Does that mean he killed her? Now we're back in Hazel's POV in 2011, and we learn that Hazel has two kids and has married a man named Lewis and opened a dance studio. All of these things are just amazing, and I'm so happy she was able to find a way to incorporate dance into her life after her injury. But I will say that her and Jenny's fight with each other to kind of like be the best is really sad to see. And because Hazel is now successful in her midlife, she feels like she's better than Jenny and that she's finally won. Unfortunately, her parents really solidified those feelings for her. And now because she's successful, she says that they look at her like they've always looked at Jenny. Well, now Jenny needs Hazel because she's leaving Ansel. So it's 2011 and that's when she leaves him. 
just something to note. It's been many years since Safi visited her at the hospital and they've just, all of them have lived a lot of life. So we learn in Hazel's part here that Jenny was an alcoholic and that she is now in active recovery. We also learned that Ansel never abused her physically, but she did say that there was definitely um, emotional and mental abuse. Hazel, in a very intense part of the chapter, helps her escape her home with Ansel and says that she's never seen anyone look that angry and unhuman like as when Jenny got into Hazel's car and Ansel was standing on the porch. She said she was naive to think she would never see Ansel again, so clearly he will come back into the picture in some way. I said again, is it possible that he kills Hazel? Jenny tells Hazel about what Safi suspects Ansel did, and Hazel cannot stop thinking about it. There is clearly just a power balance between these twins, and it's really hard to see the love between them, which is obviously really, really sad. Now we're back in Ansel's jail cell with two hours left until Ansel is executed, and we're getting more bits and pieces into what has been happening in his life. Shauna returned his theory, and it seems his ultimate goal of his life, which is to leave something behind that people could remember of him, is now gone. But he thinks and says aloud, at least he has the blue house. And we learn that after Jenny left him, he was spiraling into a deep, deep depression. A year after she left, he got a letter from Blue talking about how she thought Ansel may be her father's older brother. So he went to the blue house and all of that incessant crying in his head finally stopped. He has found baby Packer. Now I know, I know, Ansel is a serial killer. We're not supposed to like him and I don't. He's scary and manipulative and evil, but there is a soft spot in my heart for him and mostly for Lavender. I wonder if she finds out her boys have been reunited and do I wish she was there to witness it? Sort of, but does she deserve that? I don't know. But now I'm left wondering what Ellis, oh God, I mean, we know what happens, but I wrote, and now I'm left wondering what Ellis is going to think when Ansel arrives on his doorstep when he doesn't even know he has a brother. Now we're going to Safi in 2012. Um, and this is where I said it was the first part of the book that really felt like it dragged for me. I do enjoy Safi's story and I understand how important her work on the police force is. And I also understand why they put in the whole story about Lawson and the murder of Marjorie and all of that and how it shows that men can escape the judicial system. But I was just really, really bored for the vast majority of this chapter and it really dragged and I just wanted to get back to like our main story. What we do learn that's very important is that Ellis died in 2003 just one year after Lavender learned about him from Cheryl. He died of cancer and Rachel, his wife, and Blue have been running the Blue House ever since. Safi started following Ansel there and was originally creeped out that he was spending time with Blue and thought that he may murder her. But we know from Ansel's POV um, that that's definitely not the case. I just truly feel like Ansel has a big soft spot for baby Packer and of course for his family because it takes him time back to a time when he had a family, which he doesn't have anymore. Um, forgot to mention this, but Blue is Ansel's witness he wants at his execution. In the letter, she writes that she doesn't want to see him or look at him, but that she will be there. Everything seems to be going well with Ansel at the Blue House and like he finally feels some sort of a, a peace in his life, but Safi feels the need to tell Rachel and Blue what she suspects. And then after learning that information, they kick him out. I would feel bad for Ansel and parts of me do because it seems like he finally had some happiness, but of course he is a bad person for the most part. 
And Safi did do the right thing by ensuring that Rachel and Blue were safe. I just wonder where it goes from here. And with one hour left back in Ansel's POV, we learned that Ansel killed Jenny. I had inklings that it may happen, especially in Hazel's last chapter, but I just didn't want to believe it. But after he was kicked out of the blue house, he found her in Texas and he wanted to make it right with her, supposedly. He had found comfort at the blue house and he wanted to find that comfort again with Jenny. But then he saw her happy and walking out of the hospital with another man and something took over him and he couldn't take it. He kicked down her door and when she grabbed a kitchen knife out of fear, he couldn't believe that she was afraid of him and he killed her. So devastating, and I'm guessing now he'll be convicted for Jenny's murder, but I'm hoping Safi will also get him for the murders of the other women as well. It's hard for me, and I think that this is like the main point of the book, and a lot of you echoed these points in the um, polls that we did, but it's really hard for me to both hate Ansel so much and think he's a monster, yet also feel for the little boy he was in Lavender and Johnny's house. Um, They're the same person. But I feel like a lot of that childhood trauma really turned him into this monster that he is today. But you also have to remember he was killing innocent creatures before he could even really talk. So are people just born evil? Or did the abuse Johnny instilled in him from an early age make him the way he is? Either way, it's all incredibly devastating for so many reasons. Um, And we find out that Blue has shown up to be his witness. And with 31 minutes left, he does not have much more time on this earth. Back to Hazel's POV in 2012. In this chapter, Hazel finds out about Jenny's death and has to go through the process and grief of her funeral and trying to move on without her, which I'm sure is just utterly devastating. I really feel like they never got the chance to like heal their relationship. um, And they're just constant wanting to be better than the other one, um, which is really sad. The one piece of information we do get is that Hazel went to the backyard where she saw Ansel digging all those years ago at Christmas time and digs up an old jewelry box. She doesn't know it, but inside are the missing jewelry pieces of the other two women Ansel murdered, and she already had Jenny's purple ring that belonged to Lila. Since we're getting a Safi chapter next, um, I'm guessing Hazel is about to go to her with the evidence. Now we're in Safi 2012, and I said, wow, what a fantastic chapter. Just like I suspected, Hazel goes to Safi and tells her what she knows and brings all the jewelry. And with that, the pieces of the puzzle fit together for Safi, just like she always thought they would. She brings up an interesting point as a surge of guilt pulses through her. If she had just let Ansel stay at the blue house, as like he said, it was just because they were family, would Jenny still be alive? But if she did let him stay, would Blue still be alive? Would he have ended up doing something that hurt him just like Jenny did and snap and kill her? He said he really loved Blue and felt comfort there, but at one point he did feel comfort with Jenny. So is it possible something Blue or even Rachel would have done would have made him snap like that? Because there are just way too many what ifs and because she has done everything her whole life to bring justice to women, I just feel like Safi cannot feel that guilt. It was so satisfying to watch Safi interrogate Ansel and have him figure out who she was. And maybe the most poignant and powerful part of the chapter came when Safi continuously asked Ansel why he took the women's jewelry. And when he's finally beaten down in a childlike voice, he says, they were supposed to keep me safe. Just like his mom's locket that she accidentally took with her when she left her boys. 
He is so stunted emotionally by the abandonment by his mother that no matter who has been around him throughout his life, he still feels alone. It's obviously just terribly sad. And I do feel for Ansel or at least young Ansel, but it's kind of like I'm compartmentalizing like who he is. Like I feel bad for young Ansel, but I cannot feel bad for Ansel as an adult. He is truly manipulative and crazy and now has killed four women. I wonder if in the next chapter, Lavender is going to find out about all of this. And she does. So we're in Lavender's POV in 2019, and it is just incredibly devastating. I don't know how all of you feel for Lavender. I did ask and I did get some mixed responses, but I have so much sadness in love for her. She was my favorite POV to read, and I really like a story just on her, honestly. Um, I really feel like she is the heart of this book, and somehow all of her choices have formed all of these lives. Of course, I think part of Ansel was always wicked, but is part of his theory true that all people aren't either good or evil, that it's not all so black and white, that maybe in another universe, if Lavender hadn't left him, all of the women wouldn't have died, or if she had at least written to him, like she said, maybe he needed a mother, and I definitely think that he did. She meets up with Blue after Blue reaches out to her and she goes to the Blue house. She finds out all about Ansel and has a very, very strong connection with Blue. In the end, Blue promises Lavender that Ansel won't be alone and Lavender gives her the locket to bring. Will she give it to Ansel or will he at least see it? And then I read up to the end. Wow. It's just an incredibly powerful and devastating ending. We heard from all of the women we've heard Ansel's story about. So Hazel, Lavender, Safi, and Blue, and how they're dealing with his death. Lavender felt like she heard a small animal die in the forest. Was that representative of Ansel? Or maybe even the chipmunk he killed when he was younger? Then we heard from Safi, who feels completely distraught with the whole system. Is Ansel's death really the solution to his murders? She doesn't think so. And that's a bigger question on if you believe in the death penalty and As I've gotten older, I'll talk about this a little bit later, it's gotten to be something I go back and forth on quite a bit. Um, I don't know if I really want to go into it too, too much today, but overall, I agree with Safi that the whole situation is very flawed and really sad. Then we hear from Hazel, who's on the other end of the spectrum and is so happy that Ansel is going to die so that she can finally find peace and rest for her sister. She's obviously heartbroken without her. And I feel like even sees how their jealousy with each other over the years was so silly when they always just should have been on each other's side. Then we have Ansel being executed, looking at the faces of the people who have showed up for him. He sees Blue sitting there and in Blue, he sees his own mother who he hasn't seen since she left. His last words are that he wants another chance and to please let him have one, that he'll be good this time. Just really incredibly heavy. The afterword is something that I want to read because it is so powerful reading about what each girl would have went on to do if she'd have been able to live. Um, Just so moving. So I wanted to read that for you guys now because I feel like it really sums up what the whole heart of this book is about. Okay. So it says, in another world, they are sleeping. They're setting the table or jogging through the park. They're watching the news or helping with math homework. They're working late, walking the dog, pulling clogs of hair from the shower drain. In another world, this is a regular evening for Izzy, Angela, Lila, Jenny, but they do not live in that world and they do not live in this one. Here's how Izzy Sanchez would like to be remembered. She is lying on her grandfather's sailboat, stretched long on a purple towel. The Tampa day is cartoon sunny. 
Her sister, Selena, is slathered in tanning spray, coconut-scented oil pooled in the dent of her belly button. Izzy's fingers are sticky, her nails yellow from the tangerine she just peeled. She throws the skin off the side of the boat, watches it float behind in the wake. A manatee, her little brother shouts. Her mother holds him by the ribs to keep him from falling overboard. Ten cuidado piqueño. Izzy's hip bones protrude like jutting jaws from her bikini bottom and her fingers smell like orange and sunscreen. No one remembers Izzy like this. Her sister Selena does, but only when she makes herself think past the horror. Usually, Izzy, the real Izzy, is invisible beneath the shadow of what happened to her. The tragedy is that she is dead, but the tragedy is also that she belongs to him, the bad man who did the bad thing. There are millions of other moments Izzy has lived, but he has eaten them up one by one until she exists in most memories as a summation of that awful second distilled constantly in her fear, her pain, the brutal fact. From wherever Izzy is now, she wishes she could say, before all this, my shoulders burned scarlet. I peeled off the flakes, flicked them into the sink. There were things I felt before the fear. I ate an orange in the sun. Let me tell you how it tasted. Guys, That it's... It's next level. The writing is next level. That sentence is who, if that doesn't give you chills and make you want to cry, I don't know what does. The writing in this afterword is next level. I ate an orange in the sun. Let me tell you how it tasted. Okay. Angela Meyer would have traveled to 27 countries. Her favorite would have been Italy, not nearly as exotic as Malaysia or Botswana or Uruguay, but she would have loved the ancient heart of that country, entrenched proudly in tradition. She would have walked the cobblestones of Florence, Siena, Sorrento, licking plastic spoons of gelato, head buzzing from the wine. Angela would have taken her mother on vacation to the Amalfi Coast. They would have ordered Van Gogh pasta on the balcony of their seaside hotel the air tinged lavish with lemon trees and salt. At the end of the trip, Angela would have tipped the housekeepers 20%. Those women, local teenagers, would have used the bills on shots of tequila at the nightclub across the street, not thinking of Angela, only thinking of the heat, their young, sweating bodies, the pulse of the lights, and the sound of the music, beating everything into oblivion. Lila's third child would have been a girl after all. They would have named her Grace. She does not exist, but if she did, Grace would have become the executive director of the Columbus Zoo. She would have managed 800 employees, 10,000 animals, and a 500-acre property. Grace's favorite charge would have been the snow leopard, a lean, dignified animal with a lush coat of spotted white. After closing one night, a sweltering June, Grace would have found herself alone in the feline wing, the cleaning staff already gone home. She would have walked down to the leopard's terrarium, intent on admiring before she said goodnight. She'd have stood at the entrance to the leopard's high cage, stunned by the elegance of the animal, giant yellow eyes would have met hers, an invitation. She'd have unlocked the feeding door, her heart warning a patter as she inched forward two steps, forward two more. The leopard would have watched as Grace slid to the floor against the interior wall, a smile snarling at its jaw. The leopard would have stalked slowly up to her, sniffed Grace's outstretched hand in a whoosh of maybe breath. The animal would have unfurled its limbs, curled its long body into the nook where Grace's armpit met her ribs. Together, they'd have slept. At dawn, Grace would have woken to a mouthful of fur, the leopard's head resting gigantic on her knee. She would have thought, how gentle this world, how tender this mercy. There would have been 6,552 babies. Over a span of 18 years, 6,552 hearts would have beat unconscious, cocooned in the blank swim of their mother's wombs. 204 of those babies would have been born blue, then slapped awake. 
81 would have died, but 6,471 infants would have taken their first gasps of oxygen as they slid from echoing caves that have stretched their thrashing limbs into Jenny's waiting hands. Jenny would have been a blur. Their eyes, still so new, would not have been able to track her face. But 6,471 newborns would have felt the soothing capability of Jenny's gloved palms, the humility of her fingertips as she checked their vitals, wiped them clean. They'd have heard Jenny's voice rumbling the same words every time she passed them into their mother's sticky arms. Welcome, little one, Jenny would have whispered into each precious seashell ear. You'll see, it's good here. I just think that is such a fantastic sum up of the book. Um, I just, I don't have words. I think that we all, we all definitely understand what I mean there. Now, I also, as you're probably sick of me reading, I also want to read Danya Kukovka's afterward because I think it says a lot about um, why she wrote the book. So I'm going to quickly read that here um, because if you didn't read it, I don't always read the afterward. So I think it's important for me to read that here. Um, It says, behind the book, the inspiration for notes on an execution by Danya Kukovka. She says, the story of the American serial killer is one we know by heart. He is savage and monstrous, yet somehow appealing. He's your next door neighbor, your high school classmate, the man in the seat at the end of the bar. He's a mastermind, an expert liar, and the last person you'd ever suspect. He hides his evil beneath his wit and his charm. Maybe this is why we love him, because he could be anyone. I've long wondered what fascinates us about evil men, even as the world evil strikes me as diminutive. It's so simple, so final. I suspect there are very few people in the world who wake up in the morning and decide to be bad. Perhaps it's this contradiction that holds us captive, rather than the serial killers themselves. Even so, I'm baffled by this myth, a uniquely American fiction we have glorified for decades. Average men become interesting when they start hurting women. Notes on an Execution was born from a desire to dissect this exhausted narrative. We grow up hearing their names, Ted Bundy, Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy. They're celebrities, feared and revered, detested and adored. I recently watched the newest Ted Bundy movie starring Zac Efron, an adaptation of Liz Kendall's memoir, in which her experience as Bundy's girlfriend is almost entirely erased. 30 years after his death, Bundy gets another Netflix series, his prison tapes re-released. He remains the center of our cultural obsession, his victims relegated to vague flashes of hair on a television screen. And yet we rarely talk about what we lose when women die. Where would George Ann Hawkins be right now? Kimberly Leach was 12 years old when Bundy killed her. How would she have felt at 16, 20, 40? The consequences of murder are continually overshadowed, upstaged by the banal shock value of murder itself, and the devastating ripples of violence reach infinitely further than the victims themselves to their mothers, sisters, friends, and communities, while the 10 Bundys of the world dominate the headlines every time. The serial killer in Notes on an Execution embodies a character you'll recognize, but this is not his story. This book belongs instead to the women irrevocably changed by his actions. It belongs to Lavender, his mother. It belongs to Hazel, his ex-wife's sister. It belongs to Safi, the detective who hunts him down for years. Deviance is so much more than detective work, more than the act of killing. It tingles a mess of human life in its fray. What do we do with bad men? How do we punish them? And why do we glorify them? What do we want from stories of violent crime? There's a universe out there made up of girls and women stranded by a fiction we insist upon repeating. I wrote this book to give them a chance to exist beyond the men who steal the narrative. 
The story of the serial killer is bigger than the bodies he leaves behind. It encompasses an infinite web, an elaborate tangle of predominantly female trauma and endurance. There's a question lurking in the dark corners of that weary tale. I wrote this novel because I needed to ask. I needed to look. I am tired of seeing Ted Bundy's face. This is a book for the women who survive. Okay. So that's why I feel like that afterward, or sorry, the epilogue in a sense, that elsewhere chapter is really, really important because that is like the essence of why Danya Kukovka wrote this book. I've said it before. Now this is me and I'll say it again. Reading about a serial killer through the eyes of the woman who he has wronged and killed and touched along the way was incredibly powerful. I am someone who gets caught up in true crime often and enjoys watching shows about male murderers, as I think many of us do, but it is pretty sick, isn't it? How we focus so much of our attention and almost fascination on them and why and how they could have done something so sick, when in reality, we should be focusing on the victims, the women who would have lived, and the women who did live and survived beyond their loved ones' murders. It's incredibly sad and heartbreaking to think about, and really what a book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought the writing was insane. It was so good. It was beautiful, tragic, and poignant. And I was truly enthralled and sucked in from page one. It is such a unique take on a subject that has been talked about time and time again. And I've never read a book quite like this one. And I think it will stick me stick with me for a really long time. There is just so much to unpack. And that's why I'm so excited to get into my thoughts on these discussion questions. For me, just my one gripe, it did drag a bit when we got to about 70% of the way through, but it didn't last long as the tension built as we awaited Ansel's execution. And at the end, I still don't know how to feel. I absolutely despise Ansel for cutting the life short of all these women, but a small part of me does feel for him and his loneliness throughout his life without Lavender. I also feel for Lavender and how she now has to live with her decision of leaving her boys and potentially causing all of this trauma, though of course, none of it is her fault. I'm somewhere between a 4.5 and a 5 on this one. And over time, I think it may be a solid 5 for me. An absolutely stunning book. So heartbreaking and honest and powerful. So now I want to get into all the questions I asked you guys on Instagram. I told you this was going to be a long, long episode. Um, So let me just pull up some of those questions and um, your answers that you had. The first question I want to talk about is I asked if you're finished, what did you rate it? Um, The majority of you, 50% said somewhere between three to four stars, then 27% said five stars and 23% said two to three stars. Then later, since there were some two to three stars, I asked you guys again, if you rated it low or if for some reason you didn't like it, why was that? And I got a couple of answers back. Um, Someone said, I think it was the right book, wrong time for me, which I totally understand. I feel like that's how I ended up feeling about the September house, which I talked about earlier. And someone else said, I read it last year after all the hype and it just felt meh, nothing stuck with me. That's understandable. That happens for me with some books. But for me, this one was incredibly like powerful. And I feel like a lot of it will stick with me. And something I want to say before I forget and get into the poll questions is I think there's a new book out right now by Jessica Knoll, which I talked about last week called Bright Young Women. And she's the author of Luckiest Girl Alive, which a lot of you know I didn't love. Um, And Bright Young Women is about like the women that Ted Bundy murdered or like around surrounding Ted Bundy. It's kind of annoying me. I have not read it yet. So I can't really give it a solid um, review or like gripe because I don't really know anything about it apart from it being about the women of Ted Bundy. Um, But I feel like notes on an execution came first. So it might be a little bit of a copycat situation, but I do want to read it anyway. 
So then I asked, and I'll share my um, impressions too, what was your first impression of Ansel and how did it change by the end of the novel? And we had a lot of responses. So I'm mostly just going to sum up what a lot of you said. Um, A lot of you through and through thought that you hated him pretty much from the beginning and you're really um, happy with how his ending was and that he was executed, um, which I totally understand. I feel like this book is for a lot of people, black and white. Um, a lot of you really felt bad for him from the beginning and are able, and I think you're kind of like me, are able to see into his childhood trauma and understand the way that he is a little bit. Not that he's like, you know, understanding murder, but understanding like having empathy for the young boy that he has inside in his emotionally stuntedness. You know what I mean? Um, and that's kind of how I feel. So my first impression of Ansel was that I felt bad for him. Um, I think that he always had maybe something in him or he learned from his father, Johnny, um, that you can hurt innocent things because he saw his father hurting him and he was incredibly innocent. His mother was incredibly innocent and so was his little brother. And he's kind of like mirroring that abuse from a young age, which I feel like can happen and is incredibly sad. But I think that he never was able to get over that trauma that he had um, in his youth. And it was just, it was really, really hard to see. But in the end, I... I can't feel for him that much because he committed heinous, horrific crimes. Then I asked, whose perspective did you enjoy the most? And a lot of you agreed with me. 36% said you enjoyed Lavender's POV the most. 29% of you said Safi. 21% of you said Hazel. And 14% said Ansel. I feel like Lavender really is the heart of this book. Not that her leaving Ansel is the reason for these women being murdered. I don't want her to have that guilt. Um... But it really did spur a lot of trauma in him because she, he, I don't think, understood the abuse that Johnny was inflicting upon him and his mother. That's all he knew. So I don't know if he knew that that was inherently wrong. Um, I think that he felt a lot of tension in the household, I'm sure. But I don't think he understood why Lavender left him. And I do terribly wish, and I did ask this earlier so I can kind of just get into it, did you sympathize with Lavender's decision for her children? of you said yes, and 18% said no. And then I asked, how might things have changed if she had chosen differently? And someone said that you understood her choice completely and why she did what she did. But what you cannot rectify is that she never went back or never tried to get her children back or at least wrote letters. And that's really difficult. I think what, and I agree, um, I think what a lot of us are forgetting too is that she was so young when she had those kids. So she was like 17 when she had Ansel and not much older when she had um, Ellis, sorry, um, when she had Ellis. So like maybe 20 at the most, 21. And she left them at like 21, 22. So you're really young and you're not thinking clearly. But I, and then I feel like as her, you know, frontal lobe (laughs) developed, she probably thought it had been too much time. And maybe if she went back into their lives, it would be worse for them. Um, And it might've been for Ellis. Um, He knew he was adopted. He didn't know he had a brother and maybe all of that trauma would have affected him negatively. But because Ansel was in foster care, I think knowing that someone out there loved and cared for him would have been really pivotal in his life. I think that he had a life that was so devoid of love that it must've been really challenging. I don't think he ever felt truly loved by anyone except maybe for Jenny. But I think because he had had so much trauma in his life, he didn't feel worthy almost of that love. Um, And so I think that's where a lot of that comes from. Then a lot of, I asked, how does Ansel fit or not fit the mold of the American serial killer? And we also had a lot of similar responses here. 
Um, a lot of you talked about how like the murdering of the animals and innocent creatures like that is pretty classic for American American serial killer. He's extremely manipulative, you said. Um, and that's very, very and he thinks he can almost get away with anything. I don't think he ever thought he was going to get caught for the murders of those three women. I think that once he killed Jenny, he knew, okay, I'm probably going to do some time for this. But I think he always thought he would get out of the execution. He had the whole plan with Shauna. He was manipulating Shauna in order to have him escape and like live a life. And I think that he was um, really just not in touch with reality, thought he was larger than life. Um, his theory is definitely more like a manifesto, I think, and all of those things really fit the mold of the American serial killer. The next question I asked were, is, were you satisfied with Ansel's fate? 86% said yes, and 14% said no. Um, and I was at the end, because I don't think, at least if he didn't die, I would have wanted him to be in jail forever, obviously. Um, I think that he did not learn his lesson. I think his final plea at the end was like, I'll be good this time. Like, give me one more chance. I just don't think that anything that he did showed that he would have ever changed. I think the only chance that he really had for change would have been if he had stayed at the blue house. I think that's the only option he had to, um, to change, which is, and maybe he wouldn't have, but that's the only time I felt like we saw a glimpse into like who Ansel would have been if he had had a family. And I think that's how he felt too. Then I asked, what were your thoughts and emotions like as you finished the book? And pretty much everyone just said that we're incredibly sad. Um, it's not a lighthearted book. It's incredibly heavy. Um, and we all really felt the same way, just like really distraught, but really it had a real emotional toll, I think, on all of us. So I'm really, really happy that we chose this book. I think it brings up a lot of really important conversations and a lot of thoughts on like important topics that we don't really talk about very much and really heavy stuff. This is not just like a throwaway, not that romances are throwaway or thrillers are either, but I think this one really, really was different for this podcast. And it was a backlist book, um, one that I don't see getting a ton, a ton of attention or hype. Maybe I just missed out on that since I'm a little late to the game on it. But um, I really hope that I you enjoyed it. Anywhere from three to five stars is still a decent read. And I feel like the majority of you were probably like four to five, just like me, which was amazing. And I think that pretty much covers it for today's episode. Um, and I hope you all enjoyed the September book and the September podcasts. Um, and we're going into spooky season. It is fall time. So be sure to be following me on Instagram at Grace's Reading Nook, as I will be talking about and posting our October book selections this week. So make sure you get your votes in. And I will be sharing um, the reading schedule and what the official book is this week as well. So you have plenty of time to go out and pick it up and read half of it. Like I said, the next episode will be uploaded on uploaded, not uploaded, <laughs> uploaded on Monday, October 9th. So you will have plenty of time to pick up that book and start reading. Thank you all so, so much for listening. I hope you have a fantastic two weeks and I will talk to you over on my Instagram. Please be sure to give this podcast a rating, share it with your friends, share as you're listening. I love to see when you all are listening. Um, and let me know what you think of today's episode. Thank you all so much again for listening and I will talk to you very soon. Bye.